0: Matthew 24, we're starting a new chapter here this evening, and uh, we're moving right along. I don't know what the lesson count, I think it's 50-something, uh, 56 or something like that, 57, I'm not sure. But uh, verse number 1, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now you've got to go back up at the end of verse The end of chapter 23, verse 38. Behold your house, and again, he's talking to Israel, he's talking to the leadership. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus went out of the temple, went out and departed from the temple. So... When he's leaving, like we said last week at the end, he's saying, I'm Jehovah. When I leave, Jehovah, God is leaving the temple. It's not my house anymore. We, back there in chapter 21, he said, my house. It's not my house anymore. Now it's your house. And uh, that, come over to chapter 27. So he says it here to them, Matthew 27. Then in in verse 50, Matthew 27, 50, you actually see the physical manifestation of what he said to him happen. Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Notice that the veil was torn from not bottom to top, but top to bottom. In other words, no man could have done that. No man could have reached up there and did that. By the way, that veil is a very heavy item anyway. It's very thick. So God himself did what? He tore it open. The Lord says in 24, I'm leaving. And then at the cross, he rips it open. And that's significant because what's behind, who's behind the veil? You think about their temple. It's, a, it's where the Shekinah glory of God is. It's where the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubs are. It's where they were to meet God, One, you know, and so forth. And yet now, what's, what is it? It's ripped open to show that it's just an empty room. He's not there anymore. He, he's He's not going to be there anymore. So the rending of that veil demonstrates to Israel, to her leadership, that God had forsaken them and was gone from their midst. Now, back in Matthew 24, that's what the Lord just said. He leaves and then you see the rendering of the veil there at at Calvary. So he here in Matthew 24, the Lord is pronouncing a judgment upon the nation he says i'm leaving he walks out of the temple and he says when i leave god leaves because i'm god we're out i'm messiah i'm your i'm jehovah i'm leaving and you're done chapter 24 verse 1 and jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now get the picture. <laughs> He's making a judgment on the nation, and the disciples are running around ooing and awing about the buildings. They're like, wow, look at the buildings. Look at w-. they're they're like, hey, come look at this. He just pronounced judgment, walks out, the, and then they come to him and said, You know, we got, did you check this place out? You know, I, I told you, come over to Mark 13. I told you when the Mormons down there opened that temple up, you know, you could go down and walk through it on the tour. And and I'll I'll tell you what, I'm not a big thing about buildings. Buildings are great tools and stuff. But uh, it was pretty impressive to walk around there. You see the wealth that that organization has. But you're able to walk around it. That's what these guys are doing. They're like, wow, look at this. Look at Mark 13. Look here at verse number 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Isn't that interesting? Now, that verse gives you an idea of who is talking, who says this to him about the buildings. Because the disciple... There's there is a disciple that constantly calls the Lord Master. If you come over to John 13, John 13. And, and uh, that is it's very interesting how he pops up. John 13, 13. Ye call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am I. So the disciples called him by two names, Master and Lord. There's one was Lord, one was master. Now come back with me to Matthew 26 and notice who consistently calls him master. The Peter and the guys usually they sit there and they call him Lord. They'll say Lord. They don't say master, except for one guy. Matthew uh, 26. Did I tell you that? All right, 26, and i got to find the verse. 25. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said. Judas Iscariot is the disciple that always said, Master. He's the one that used that term consistently over and over again. And over so when you go back to Matthew or mark 13 I need you back there just real quick here and his, and he as he went out of the temple one of his disciples saith unto him master Judas Iscariot was the one walking around paying attention to the building the wealth the the, the, the uh, he was the, he was impressed by the temple building, and by the temple worship, and all of that religious thing that was going on, and yet he's also the one that ends up betraying the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and so forth. So they had become impressed with the ceremony, with the building, with the activity, and uh, they were beginning to get pulled away, the pomp, the circumstance, all that religious activity, they were moving away now you got mark 13 stick something in there come back with me to hosea chapter 8 because one of the most dangerous things that anyone can do in church or spiritual realm is to get involved in a major building program (laughs) and uh, we have look at hosea 8 and look at verse 14 Hosea 8, 14. I mean, you understand if you've been around any or denominational organizations, there's always a building you know, program. When, when we were trying to pay the mortgage off here, I told the guys on the board, I'm going to get one of those thermometers and we'll go mark it, you know, because hang it on the wall, make everybody feel guilty because it didn't get in filled in fast enough, you know. Because usually that's what they do. You know, they, they put you to the grindstone. Uh, Hosea 8, look at verse 14. For Israel hath forsaken his maker and, uh, what, buildeth temples. You see, they lost the Lord in, when they started their building programs. And again, you have to be un- very careful with that and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. A, building's a great is to- a great thing to have. It's a tool. Now, the people are the church and the building is where the church meets. And uh, Paul over there in First Timothy three, he says, "To uh, till I come, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the church of the living God, and so forth." So he, there's a there is a, a a prescription for owning property, and, and it's and and having a a, a permanent spot, uh, ha- having a building. It, begins to, it really transformed our ministry here because uh, we went from a rental th- thinking to a permanent thinking. So when you rent, here, you're here today, gone tomorrow. When we were renting, I talked to several uh, commercial real estate people because we were looking for places to go. And they're like, we do not rent to churches. And I'm like, okay, well, rent to me. He goes, no, you don't understand. So I asked one guy, I said, why don't you rent the churches? He said, here today, gone tomorrow, and they never pay their rent. I'm like, well, we'll pay our rent, but he's like, it doesn't matter. We've been burned too many times, so we're just not going to do that. But when you own something, what do you do? You put your roots in. You, you, you become permanent. You become committed to the community. And uh, that adds value to the, the, the ministry. Again, you don't worship the buildings. You, you, we worship God, but rather we use that building as a tool, as a ministry tool. And uh, the hardest part in all that is not getting caught up in, uh, in, in, in all of that. Um, you still got Mark 13, right? Go back to Matthew 24 real quick here and uh, hold on to Mark 13. Don't let it go. Mark 24 and verse, well, verse number one again. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. They're really impressed by the buildings. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be Thrown down. Why am I ringing? Okay, I thought I turned me down. Not, uh, not up close. Not this way. Not where they were behind. The they were where they. um, Because the Lord's in there teaching every day. He's dealing with them. So they would have seen them from. They were more. They were more familiar with the synagogues than the temple because the temples were the priest work and so forth um, verse two uh, they they come they show him the beautiful buildings so what does the lord say to them? i'm going to destroy it verse two there shall not be left here one stone upon another that ye shall that shall not be thrown down he, he they're looking at all of the wow and he's sitting there going um I'm going to destroy all this guys. <laughs> you guys are stuck on looking at it. I'm going to come and destroy it. Now, when he says this, come back with me to to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. I didn't forget about Mark, just hang on to it. Micah chapter 3. This the synagogue is um, it. The temple's where the priests are. It's where and they're in Jerusalem, and it's where everybody comes once a year or three times a year. I'm sorry. The synagogue's a, in, is a little local church. And this is the main. This is the main center. And actually, this was would have been Solomon's temple, and, and so it was huge. You've got different gardens and uh, it's a whole complex of uh, buildings and courts and different things that were going on. Uh, Micah 3 when he says here in Matthew 24 2 about there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be overthrown look at Micah 3 and verse number 12 therefore shall Zion for her sake be plowed as a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high place of the forest. There's a, a reference there to Jerusalem being plowed under. Come on over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 26. So when the Lord says, hey, I'm going to come and destroy all this, what that tells you, Jeremiah 26 and verse 18 is that the, where the, what the Lord's talking about in Matthew 24 is a second coming reference. So everything we're going to deal with in Matthew 24 is going to have to do with the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, and his coming back. Okay, Jeremiah 26, verse number 18. Micah the Morshite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and spake, to all the people of Judah, so this is Micah 3, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. So you've got this prophecy, and Jeremiah quotes Micah, that is a reference to a second coming of Christ, where he's going to plow up the temple area, and all that's going to be destroyed, Matthew 24, verse 2. Jesus looks at him and says, ye see, see ye not all these things? You look at all this, you see all this great, you know, the courtyards, and they had the courtyards of the mothers and all this different stuff. When I come back, I'm going to plow it all up. It's going to all go away. Because it is a picture of Israel's religion. And they had polluted that and had turned it into something that it wasn't to be. Now, what happened... Are you back in Matthew 24? That's where we need to be. Matthew 24. Now, what happens here when he says, you see all this stuff? I I can just see the Lord. Guys, don't get all hooked on the pomp and circumstance because I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to turn it all over. Now, what happens when you get into the preacher talk and the theology is this is where... A.D. 70 comes into play, and there's a group. It's called Preterism, the Preterist, and what happens is, is they say that verse two took place in 70 A.D. and Matthew 24:2, where he, where the, where Jerusalem is turned over, plowed under, destroyed, wiped out, and what happens is is they use a note out of Schofield's reference that talks about Titus fulfilling this in A.D. 70. Okay? So, when you begin to think about A.D. 70, and you think about the commentary guys and the theology guys saying that Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70... And that is a fulfillment of Matthew 24. You all of a sudden you should have your little antennas going off, alarms because they have not done something. They have not recognized that in AD 70 what dispensation are we in? Grace. See, Paul comes on the scene roughly 3334 AD and and he and he's running to Sixty-three, sixty-five A.D. He's, and then, and by the way, Titus, he doesn't destroy the city in seventy. He lays waste to it, but he doesn't destroy it. It's not wiped out yet. Not what like the Lord's saying. So when you come into this stuff, you real quickly begin to see how critical it is to understand where we're at. We're in the age of grace. We're not in the age of prophecy. And what happens is, is when you begin to think about, you know, people talk about Hitler being uh, the Antichrist. Well, how how you know he's not, one, is he doesn't match up to the nationality issues. But two, you're in the age of grace. And three, the only way you would ever know that, hitler was the antichrist is to be past all that and look back and say yeah he was see because god's word tells you how he's going to look and be it's like you hear him trump's the antichrist obama's the antichrist clinton's yeah and it's like just stupidity out of people but they don't understand the word rightly divided so and somebody put a microphone in front of them and off they go so you have to be careful when we go down through this passage because when you do, you have to understand that by 70 A.D., the canon of the scriptures that we hold, by 70 A.D., all of the New Testament was done, was written, was copied, and had been distributed out to all of the believers. All of Paul's epistles were written and all of it was done. And actually, you guys know me, 2 Timothy's the last book, so that means all the Hebrew epistles were done. So when you read about Revelation being written in 90, 96 AD or whatever, no, it was written much earlier. And actually, if you go to Hebrews, run over to Hebrews 8. It's a fascinating thing. You look at Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8, verse 13. Hebrews 8.13. So, again, it's an interesting idea that they can look at history and say, well, 70 A.D., Titus did this, so that's a fulfillment of Matthew 24. But the problem is, is God had interrupted Matthew 24. He had interrupted that prophetic program. So let's not slip back into the prophetic program. Rather, let's go into the passage, which is what we're going to do here, and let's see what Christ is talking about and just take it as it comes to us. If you look at Hebrews 8, verse 13, In that he saith, a new covenant hath, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to what? So the condition in Hebrews is what's happening. The old covenant is ready to vanish away. The new covenant is ready to be established. So we're not in Paul's epistles. We're not in... We're we're historically, we're in Acts. That's what they're looking at. If you look over in chapter 10, look at verse 11. By the way, Hebrews 2 tells us that he's writing of things to come. So we're going to put it out on the other side of the book of Acts. Hebrews 10, if you look at verse 11... And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which never, which can never take away sin. So, what is going on in the time period of Hebrews being written? There's a priest standing, in a t- doing daily sacrifices. So, when you come into Hebrews, you come back to Hebrews two. Even the book of Hebrews is not a late book. Hebrews is really an earlier book. It's written in light of Paul's revelation about the cross. And Hebrews comes in and explains what the cross means to that little flock. If you look at Hebrews 2, if you look at verse 5, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, comma, whereof we speak. So what are we going to be talking about? So you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts, period, Then you would have Hebrews through Revelation. But what did he do? He threw an interruption there, and you have Paul's epistle. So when you come to, by the way, the book of Hebrews doesn't say anywhere in it, when the church, the body of Christ is over, here's what's going to happen. It says that old covenant is vanishing away, and here comes the new covenant. And the new covenant is a grace covenant based upon the work of Christ on the cross for you guys. And that issue that happens in Hebrews, again, it's written in light of the revelation given by Paul about the cross. So it's written in that Acts period of time between Acts 9 and 28 where that information is being taught by Paul and then put out there. After Paul's revelation uh, is complete and comes in, they understand that the temple and the temple worship is going to cease. So when 70 AD comes by, what does that, those circumcision believers that are left, that are still alive, what are they doing? What do they understand to be the case? Well, Acts 15, Galatians 2, what do they understand they're sitting in? The age of grace. They see Titus sack the, the city. They do his thing. You know what they know that is not happening? Matthew 24. <laughs> Why? Because they understand what God is doing, by, and they not only understand Him, they believe Him. See, that's the thing. It, it's very. Fa- uh, um, go back to Matthew 24, and on your way, get. Now we're going to go back to Mark 13. It's fascinating to me that the apostles. Understood what Paul was and who Paul was and what he was all about, and they endorsed him, and then they went and finished up their the writings Hebrews through Revelation, got all that done, and us dumb thump Gentiles think that they're out there doing stuff that they weren't out there doing, and the only one that really violated that agreement was James, because he's out getting look at how people are zealous of the law. He stayed doing stuff that he had agreed that he wouldn't do, you know. And and then, on top of all that, take Satan. Satan knew instantly that God was no longer doing the prophetic program, turned his eyes, took his eyes off of Peter and the little flock and put them directly on Paul and the body of Christ. And what do we do? Not we, but people. Oh, we're back over here in Acts 2 doing it. No, you're not. Even Satan's not doing that stuff. Anyway, I'll get off my stool. Matthew 24, verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, what happens is, is you see that thing where it says the disciples came unto him? He is not holding a big meeting, Mark 13, okay? He's literally only talking to just a couple, Mark 13 and verse number 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, just four of the 12, come and ask him privately this question. Now, Peter, James, and John, they're the three. Peter's the chiefest apostle. James and John, the thunder of Zebedee. There's the word of God and the voice of God. And then you have Andrew. So when you come back to Matthew 24, this is the second Olivet Discourse, they call it. And the first one is over in Matthew 5. And he's not talking to a big group. He's really literally talking to the leadership of the little flock, the heads of the twelve. And it's very fascinating that uh, they come in, and they're very, again, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. (laughs) That means Judas and them have already left. The rest of the guys have moved on. They come up, Matthew 24, 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be... And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Yes, well, the Olivet Discourse means that he's on the Mount of Olives. He's discoursing from the Mount of Olives. And he's just talking to the little guys. The first, the little guys, the little flock, the, the four disciples, okay, not the little guys, the little children. There you go. The first one is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in the first discourse, he at the beginning of his ministry, he now is going to he talks to them about the characteristics the, the constitution of the kingdom, how everybody's going to behave. Uh, one guy had it as the ethics of the kingdom. Now, the second one, which is at the end of his ministry, because he's about to go to Calvary, now here he's going to talk about the eschatology of the kingdom. He, ooh, yeah. This one he's going to talk about how the kingdom comes in, the consummation of the kingdom, and the characteristics of the last days, and the people who are going to go into the kingdom through the tribulation. So in here... Beginning, okay, this is what every, how everybody's going to behave and look like in the kingdom, Matthew 5, 6, 7. And now here, the end times, here's what it is. Thus the question, the, there's really three questions asked here by the guys. So when you think here about the second Sermon on the Mount, and again, you'll notice it's the Mount of Olives. That's significant. Come over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Yeah, the air conditioning kicked on. I could feel it. <laughs> yeah, the front rows bundling up, the back rows going, woohoo, all right. <laughs> Acts chapter 1. Notice this, this significance here in the end of his ministry because of he's going to be talking about the, the last days and the tribulation. Acts 1, verse number 9. Acts 1 9. And when they had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So he's his ascension. All right? Verse 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So they're out on the Mount of Olives out there, and he's ascended up. Now look at verse 11 which also, uh, verse 10, and while they looked steadfast toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He's ascended up from the Mount of Olives, and you know what he says? He's going to come back The same way. As you saw him go up, when he's coming back, he's going to come back the same way. Now, come over to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. So it's the end of the book. Zechariah 14. The thing about the Mount of Olives and why it's so significant here at the end. They could have went, he has been sleeping, he's been camping on the Mount of Olives the daytime goes into Jerusalem, into the temple, and teaches. Leaves the city, comes out, goes back to camp. Now, they're walking back out. The, the eight disciples go on. The four guys hang back, and, he, and, he's, and they're asking him, hey, what's going to happen here, when and what? And he sits down with them on the Mount of Olives, and he begins to talk about the end. And the significance of that is Zechariah 14. It's also Acts 1, because in Acts 1, he left, and the angel said what? The way he left is the way he's coming back. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. So where are we at? When when Christ comes back the second time, verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave and so forth, and off you go. When he comes back the second time, his feet doesn't touch the ground until he gets back to the place where his feet the last time were touching, which is the Mount of Olives. So when you come back to Matthew 24... It's not by chance or happenstance or circumstance. It's rather by a great design here that he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to give this discourse about the last days, the end times, and him coming back. So the Mount of Olives in your Bible is always associated, I shouldn't say always, most of the, majority of the time associated with, with the Lord's second coming uh, back to the earth and then to set up his kingdom. So he's going to sit here, give the, his second sermon on the mount, if you will, and he's going to talk to them about uh, the, uh, him coming back and the establishment of his kingdom, Matthew 24. I will tell you, by the way, Ma- Matthew 24 and 25 are two uh, of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible. And I say that understanding that Acts 2 and Hebrews 6 gives it a good run for its money. So you have, as we go through it, I want to just take it as it comes to us and not run off into other things because people, literally there are religious denominations built off of information in these two chapters. And when that happens, then you, well, well first of all, it happens because of the failure to rightly divide the word, be dispensational. But then, like that AD 70, the preterist view and so forth, but it also is a failure to just study the scripture the way it is, okay? So when you come here, Matthew 24, verse 3, they're going to ask him, it's two questions, but it's, it's uh, two questions with three parts. Because there's only two question marks. Notice what they say. Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. So you've got two questions really in three parts. You've got a when. when. When is your coming? All right? And then what is the sign of... Thy coming, I'm sorry, when shall these things be? And then what's the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the world? (laughs) So you got really three issues here that we're going to be looking at. And when you look at this from verse 4 to verse 24, he's going to answer these questions in reverse order. Uh, And he does this because of the significance of his coming back triggers it all but brings it to a completion here so the first in verse 4 to 24 he's going to answer the issue of the end of the world what is the sign of the end of the world from verse 25 down to verse 31 he's going to answer the question about the sign of his coming then in verse 32 to 51 He's going to answer the question of when. And in all of this, nowhere does 70 A.D. apply, by the way, okay? And it's an interesting thing when he, by the way, he's going to say there about the when, and over in Acts 1, he says it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. To know the time or the seasons, which the Father. So there's some things there. That's why that's at the end, okay? All right. Now, so the first issue is going to be what is the sign of the end of of the world? And we've already been uh, instructed on some of that. Come back to Matthew 13 about the end of the world. That expression, we've already seen it. And He's given it to us in a parable of the tares and the wheat. So Matthew thirteen verse thirty-eight, Matthew thirteen thirty-eight, he's going to explain the uh, the uh, parable of the tares of the field. Verse thirty-six, thirty-seven, verse thirty-eight. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So when he says the end of the world, what is the end of the world? He, he's not talking about the end of the planet. Okay? Usually people, all oh, the... Well, if if the end of the world was the end of the planet, then there would be no planet to put the kingdom on. Okay, so we're not talking about that. We're not. You you know, we'll talk about somebody daydreaming, and they'll we'll say what they're they're in their own little world. Okay, you know, they're just kind of out there. So really, what we're talking about is 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 a closed-in system type thing. Paul in Galatians, describes the present evil world. We'll use, uh, we, so in other words, we, we, we tend to use that word age. That's what we're talking about. Industrial age, computer age, and so on. It's, it's the same kind of thing. So the end of the world, or the end of the age in Matthew 13, is the end of the tribulation period. That's what he's talking about. It's the end of that that issue where Satan has—it's the end of that, and yet it's the beginning of the kingdom of God. Uh, come back—we're we're headed back to Matthew twenty-four, but come to Revelation eleven. Revelation eleven, and verse fifteen. So when you, you see that end of the, what is the sign of the end of the world, he's not talking about the planet being annihilated. He's literally talking about the end of that of the of the of the present evil world where the god of this world satan is in charge when does that thing end okay that's really what he's after revelation 11 verse 15 the seventh angel sounded and there was a great voice in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our lord and his christ and he shall reign forever and ever so that's Again, the present evil world is that world system that's under the control and the authority, come back to Matthew 24, of Satan. It's the vehicle that's going to manifest Satan's philosophy, Satan's doctrine. And uh, again, that's why you, Paul will say, be not conformed to this world. You know, so you've got a kind of, that's the idea here. So the end of the world that he's talking about is going to be the end of the tribulation, the end of the 70th week, and, and, and then when Christ sets up his kingdom. And I'll be honest with you, just you will hear me try and use the 70th week term, because tribulation is a broad term. We're going to get down here in, in, in Matthew 24, and we're going to see great tribulation. So tribulation, Israel has been under tribulation since Solomon's day, when Solomon died. Those five courses of judgment come in. That's tribulation all through that. But the 70th week of Daniel is something very specific, very special, and that's what he's talking about here. Okay? So I'll try and use that 70th week. If I slip and use tribulation, that's what we're talking about. Okay? (laughs) Because... It's important to be accurate, it really is, when you get into this, especially in Matthew 24 and 25, because so many people play off different words, okay? All right, Matthew 24, verse number four, and Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. "...for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet." Isn't that interesting? When you hear about wars and rumors of wars... It means the coming, the end is coming. It's close, but it isn't here. See, it isn't done. That's why the seventy A.D. the preterist stuff just is—it's foolishness because they say when that happened, he fulfilled all of when the preterists say, the hardcore ones say that when Titus seventy A.D. happened. All of prophecy was fulfilled and we're living and and we moved right into the kingdom. And then people do what Dwayne just did, huh? What what are you talking about? Yeah, the kingdom right now. Well, then they come up with this stuff. Well, it's a kingdom in the hearts of men. And they start using that kind of terminology and they move you and they start dancing around because Bible students have set up... Has stood up and said, wait a minute. The kingdom says no more tears, no more death. (laughs) All this good stuff, you know, and oh, it's just in the heart. So you got a bunch of stuff like that. But again, 70 AD is not here at all in this picture. Verse seven, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famine and pestilence and earthquakes and diver places. All these are the beginning of, sorrows they're not the end of sorrows they are the what the beginning of sorrows it's interesting when people quote this passage they use it as the end of sorrows but the verse actually says it's what the beginning the lord so they say the lord must be coming because these things are happening but that's not the the, it's the beginning. It isn't the end. It's the beginning. You know, people, I, we, the other day, <laughs> Mark of the Beast, what are we looking at? Well, no, that's that's not, by the way, the Mark of the Beast is in the middle. It's not even at the end. It's like, oh. But they, again, pull what hair left I got out. Wars and Wars and rumors of wars. It's all been interrupted. Wars and rumors of wars are only a characteristic of the beginning. That's the point. Verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Many of the believers in the group that go through the tribulation, they're going to begin to, many of Israel, let's say it like that, not believers, but Israel, are going to betray one another. And you go over in the book of Revelation, and, if, and you read the message to the churches there, and they say to the overcomer, you're going to be what? You're going to be thrown in jail. You're going to be judged. Some of you are going to be beheaded. Some of you are going to make it. And he goes, like, What is happening there? Who turned them in? Their neighbor did. That's why James and John, 1 John, say they are not of us. If they were of us, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. But they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan, John writes in Revelation. That's who they belong to. That's a characteristic of the beginning. Verse 11, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. That's why Peter says to him there in 2 Peter 2, talking to him about dealing with the false prophets. Revelation 2 and 3 there, he says, John says to him in that message, the angel message to the churches there, he says, you guys did good because you withstood the false prophet, but I got something to pick. You're not quite all there yet. And because iniquity, verse 12, shall abound, and the love of many shall wax cold. That's an interesting way of st- stating that. When iniquity abounds, the love of many wax cold. 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about that they are without natural affection. We see that in our society today when you talk about Abortion a child there's a natural instinct of a mother to protect the child and it's not there anymore you see the people over the years where they the mom drives off the cliff with the kids in there and boom you know that's it's just it's iniquity is what is abounding this is all characteristics here of the beginning It's also characteristics of the tribulation. That's why verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Oh, there it is. Unto the end of what? The end of the tribulation. Not unto the end of your life. Not to the end of the, you know, of whatever. It's the end of the tribulation. That's the context that that verse sits in. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. You see, the end in verse 3, the end in verse 6, verse 13 and 14, it's the same end, E-N-D. The period of time in verse 9 to 14 When the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations. Okay? In that time, by the way, in verse 9 to 12, it's obvious that it's going to be a tough time to preach the gospel of the kingdom. People aren't going to be falling all over each other to believe it and to receive it and to hear it. They're actually going to be betraying one another, killing them. People in those ranks of that little flock are going to get it in the neck because Israel around them has rebelled. So what do you have? From, nine, from 5, verse 4, 5, down to verse 14, you have the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. That's what you have. And you know that because of what verse 15 says. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in that holy in the holy place. Whosoever readeth, let him read. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now we're, time's almost up. But there's two things in verse fifteen. When in Daniel does the abomination that maketh desolate stand in the holy place? By the way, that's Daniel 9, verse 27. It happens in the midst of the week. Don't uh, Again, to be accurate, not middle, midst. Okay? <laughs> and it's very clear that that's in the midst of the week. So down to verse 15 is the first half of the week, the first three and a half years of that 70th week, of those seven years. And then from verse 15 down, you're going to have the second half, the second three and a half years, and 15 identifies where the, middle of the the midst of the week happened, and then 15 on, we're going to be down to the end. Okay? Again, if you'll notice the parenthesis, whosoever readeth, let him understand. That is a great, chilling reminder that you and I will not understand this stuff. As much as we think, because Dr. So-and-so told us, Lee, how, uh, uh, I just had the guy's name. Doggun it. Big big revelation, second coming guy. It was on the TV. Hal Lindsay, yeah. Just because Dr. Lindsay told us, or the other guys. No. That stuff in Daniel, you know, you go, we go through Daniel and GSB, and Dad says it over and over. I don't understand this. I, he does now more than he did then because of the time to study, but it's written to who? Israel. It's not written to you and I. That's why when I hear people stuck in Revelation, I go, it's not written to you. You're not going to understand that. We can get a a big outline and a broad understanding of it, but those details are hard for us to get because it's not talking to us. But it's also talking to a specific group of people sitting where in the 70th week of Daniel who are going to be seeing this stuff and moving through now in verse 13 and 14, we're going to pick up there next time, but there's something I want to do with you uh, here before we quit. Cause the hour is, is almost up. You got Matthew 24. Come back over with me to revelation six because In Revelation 6, there are some seals that are going to get opened, six of them, okay? And in the six seals that are laid out in Revelation 6, you see a correspondence to them in Matthew 24, verse 5, down to verse uh, 13 there, and then down in another passage. And it's very fascinating that... The Lord teaches those four men about this, and then John's going to write about it. And again, that's because who is Jesus? He's the Word, and he, under, he knows what's coming. 6-1. By the way, the 70th week of Daniel does not start in Revelation 1. It starts in Revelation 6. Okay? Okay? 6-1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of the thunder. One of the four beasts sang, Come and see. I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Revelation 6-2, that's the, the white horse, first seal. Verse 3, And he opened the second seal. And verse 4 there, and there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I behold, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, A measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not at the uh, at the oil and the wine and when he had opened the fourth seal I heard the voice of the fourth beast say come and see and I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him and the power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the uh, uh, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain with the word of God, and for, uh, I'm sorry for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. Verse 12, and I behold, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. Verse 14, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island was moved out of their place. So, by the way, there's, a, there's an appearance here, verse 16, and, and, uh, and said to the mountain and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So there are six seals. We'll come back to Matthew 24. The first seal That white horse is not the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the Antichrist. The second seal has to do with war, that's there in verse 3 and 4. The third seal, the rider on the black horse, has to do with famine. The The fourth seal, the rider on the pale horse there, has to do with death and hell and pestilence. And the fifth has to do with the persecution, the souls under the altar. That six seals has to do. The sixth one has to do with signs in the heavens, and that the fact that the heavens open, and there's a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, ready to come back in wrath. Now, in Matthew 24, watch them match up. In Matthew 24, verse five, for many shall come in my name, saying, "I am Christ," and shall deceive many. Well there are many false christs showing up, right? Antichrist, and there's the first seal, verse 6. And you shall hear wars and rumors of wars for nations and verse 7, for nation shall rise against nation. There's the second seal, the rider on the red horse and the thing about going to war. It's interesting by the way that rider, he only has a bow. He does not say he has an arrow. He's only a bow. The next rider has a great sword, wheeling death. So, anyway, verse 7, uh, there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes and die. See, see that, famines? There's the third seal, the black horse. Uh, pestilence and earthquakes, there's the fourth seal with the pale, uh, with the ride, the pale horse and the rider. That's also you, you see, uh, um, there. Uh, earthquakes, it's associated with both that and the sixth seal. Verse 9, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offered, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love the love of many shall wax cold. There's the fifth seal. If you drop down to verse 29, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man, in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And that is going to move over to the sixth seal there about the issue of the signs in the heavens and the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven. So when you look at Matthew 24, these first fourteen verses, they're going to match up to what's coming to them in Revelation 6. So guess what you know? We're talking about the 70th week of Daniel. We're not talking about what's going on today in the planet. That's the age of grace, the dispensation of grace. We're not talking about 8070. 70 We're talking about a fu- an event future of us because God has interrupted the program. So when you study this, we're studying future history. We're looking at things that are happening Concerning the tribulation and the second coming of Christ, so we need to leave them over there, and not bring them into us today, because it isn't talking about us. Okay, I hope you catch that. I did that rather quickly. I'm I apologize for that, but just because of the time. Okay, and besides, I think we're at the bottom of Dwayne's page. <laughs> oh, I'm on the second page now. Okay, so the I that's how I know the hour is up. Okay. So we're going to pick back up and catch some things in verse 13 and 14, and, and again, just kind of move on. And, and, and really, I'm not trying to rush through this and not look at the details, but we're so familiar with all of the talk about this stuff that I, think, I don't think we need to spend a lot of... We could literally, on verse number 5, you could spend an hour and a half just running verse 5. Where you go over into 1 John, you go back to Deuteronomy 13 where he ta- tells Israel how to deal with the false prophets, take them out and kill them. Go to First John and see the test given to identify these false prophets. You go to Second Peter where he deals with that, that little flock there and telling them how to deal with the false prophets, you go in, so we could do all that, we almost did it, but you could do all that, and I think we're familiar with that enough to kind of get the idea, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord, we thank you for the study and for the look here to see what uh, you, you will be doing with your nation and with the group of people that will be going through that 70th week and that great tribulation time period. And we'll just give you the praise and the glory for your plan and for your honor. In your name we pray. Amen.